What I find so interesting about our practice, which it is a practice, is that as we're releasing trauma and stress and anxiety, and the brain-based movement that we're doing helps us to slow down and create the purposeful pause, it allows us to be present and let go of things. Um, yoga in and of itself, the kind that we practice is called hatha yoga. But how many people know how to say yoga? We all say in America, yoga. Down south they say yoga. In Minnesota we say, I don't know, how would we say yoga in Minnesota? Yoga, yeah. But in uh, India they say yoga. 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 Like yoga. Yoga. I know how to say in Chinese. Yeah. Yu <laughs> Oh, cool. Yu Jia. So it's literally the translation, like the, how the English sound translated in Chinese character. That's so neat. Y U J A. Yu Jia. Nice. But the point of our yoga practice and hatha yoga is to find balance. And yoga, especially for children, sets us inwardly free. As you teach, kids yoga, you're really helping uh, find happiness. And I always think happiness is a really kind of like ambiguous word. So I like to think of the idea of contentment. We're trying to find contentment and ease in our life. Get rid of pain and suffering and find harmony and mindfulness practices seem to be the best way to bring us back to our true nature. As we get older, as we've all felt in our lives, we get kind of closed and shut down and tight in our bodies and our minds. And really, these external influences get us down, but they shouldn't be internalized. And if we could teach a children that yoga movement and yoga philosophy, then we really set ourselves up for a, a good path to be inwardly free for our whole life. And yoga, to me, is a tool that lasts a lifetime. It's a skill. It's habitual. And if we don't teach this pragmatic resiliency training at a young age, it's harder when we get older, as we all know as we've come into the practice. But if it's something ingrained in you, then you will never lose this birthright of being totally free and happy and able to see things from multiple perspectives instead of having that one viewpoint. This ancient practice from the East is popular and because yoga is for everyone, and it teaches people right now, regardless of age, ability, or level of health, to be in the moment. And what I love about it is the creative expression associated with the poses, or the asanas, are all about being with the breath. So we'll all learn about the, bless you, the eight limbs of our practice, right? And the eight limbs of our practice are really interesting because Asana is one of the limbs. It's yama, niyama, asana, pranayama. What I want you to think about is coming back to the idea of what's the one word I want you to learn from this training and share with your students? Breathing. Breathing. Which in turn, when you think about asana, asana, when you think of the definition of it, what is the first definition that comes to mind? Posture. Posture. Some people say seat. But to me, when you delve deeper into the idea of yoga and you dive deeper into the word asana, it means to sit on the platform of the breath. 
that it's not just like a posture, because anybody can do a posture. If I'm running and after running, I start going like this, I'm stretching, right? I mean, we in yoga call this, bless you, Janushri Sasana A, but in turn, it's also as yogis, Maha Mudra, the greatest of all poses, because you're not just stretching, you're putting breath with movement, and you're creating something greater than just a stretch after doing a physical activity. So think of asana as you start becoming teachers and start carrying this out into the world, not as just a posture but, or to sit into a position, but actually as to sit on the platform of the breath and it will change everything that you do. So that your flashcards that you're using when you're working with the kids aren't just about like, oh, this is a cute little pose, but every pose that the kid picks, we're breathing in it. Uh, kids appreciate the benefits and they cherish the opportunity to rest at the end of class. That's a huge thing, that we're creating space for a time in. And we're going to talk about that when we start diving deep into the manual. Movements for kids are really organic and they're um, modeled after animals and elements. Like we do like a lion's pose or we did camel pose or kangaroo pose today or flamingo pose like we did yesterday. If you watch, like yogis did, objects in nature, they always learn how to harness the pure potentiality of the breath. But another thing that's interesting, like mountains and plants, they grow upward because they're going up towards the sun. They're going up and building up energies. And I think that's really um, important, too, uh, it makes things uh, in when you're teaching kids, the idea of harnessing the pure potentiality of the breath can make you taller, stronger. Like mountains, if thoughts are bugging you, a mountain doesn't, it can get eroded and stuff, but it still stands. A river can run around it, but it still stands even though things try and pick at it and break it down. The enjoyment of kids' classes are reason enough to teach kids, but the benefits go really far beyond. It improves focus, raises awareness, self-esteem, releases stress. Um, when we cultivate these amazing healthy habits, the kids generate a sense of inner peace, and in turn, they already tap into that freedom or contentment that they can share, not just with themselves, but with their families and with the world and make the world a better place. And these benefits are available to all who engage, no matter what age, and, and appreciate the chance to know themselves better and to cultivate a sense of mastery within, which is what Patanjali really teaches, is that you're teaching the mastery of stilling the mind. So as yogis, what do we call our mind? The monkey, right? Yeah. Uh, Patanjali really talked about trying to get your mind to focus so we can work to our fullest potential. And when they uh, created the idea of yoga, you were trying to make your journey smooth. By focusing on stillness, we find our inner spirit, our intuition, our authentic nature. But as we start studying the neurological and the 
pathways and the science behind it, we allow ourselves to get out of the animal reptilian brain into the prefrontal cortex or the logic, the higher states of consciousness. Uh, um, we're literally teaching by focusing uh, our mind and harnessing the potentiality of the breath, we're allowing ourselves to tap into a grounded sensation and when we're grounded, then we can reach our full potential. And that's what we're teaching when we're teaching. The yoga philosophers believe that our mind functions at five different levels. So you could actually teach this at a class. A lot of the lessons that are inside of your manual are things that you could actually teach as a class. You could be a drunken monkey swinging from a branch where you're just random thoughts. You could be inactive and uninspired like a buffalo or like a cow stuck in the mud. You could be uh, where you're like really, really doubtful and then all of a sudden you're really like, oh, I'm totally right. And that would be almost like a busy bee buzzing from thing to thing and flower to flower, picking up the pollen but then kind of getting distracted. Or you could be like a racehorse where you have direction but you might lack attention. Or you could teach like you're a car or a fine-tuned engine where thoughts are linked to the object of attention and your mind and object unite to become one. And I like to think, as I have mentioned several times before, when you really harness the prana and the breath work, then what you're doing is your body is like a fine-tuned machine. The inhales and the exhales, the prana and the apana become the pistons of your engine that keep you functioning properly. So you really have to find the equanimity and the balance through that. And when earlier practitioners took their inspiration from the natural world around them, they admired the patterns and the focus and the ways that the animals conserved energy. By admiring this instinctive way of living, the yogis began to imitate animals and kind of have those qualities. And that's a lot, a lot of times why we have animal postures. So when you look at an animal like um, an elephant or a mouse, who lives longer? An elephant, and why does an elephant live longer? Uses less energy, right? Uh, remember when we started practice and I had you all take your, uh, how many breaths you can do in a minute, and I had you feel your heart at the same time? Elephants live 80 years and mice live only one year, and the breathing and the heart rate is a huge part of why the elephant lives really long. A mouse has a very fast, 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 fast heart rate. Um, so that's one example. You could teach a whole class about like an elephant and a mouse. What I think is really interesting is that when you see an elephant or a Ganesh in Hindu mythology, they always have a little mouse next to them. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. we have two facets of our being. So we're always trying to find the balance between that really like hyper overactive and that maybe getting a little too lethargic, too set in your ways. There's always a mindful balance between the two. And then when, when I was talking about the mountains, yogis noticed that plants and flowers grow upward and were affected and nourished by the sunlight. So the sun became a really big center of energy for yogis. And the plants and, and the things that grew upward became metaphors for a human 
uh, code of living, you know, right living, mindful efforts, all the yamas and the yamas. What's interesting is like a tree, people can be happier and healthier if they feel grounded and flexible. And I like to really use a lot of that philosophy and that uh, teaching of using a tree as a metaphor and practice a lot. And that's why in the beginning of our class, the kids go to Vera the tree because it's a great way to ground down, to anchor into their truth, to settle in. Through the postures and mindful breath awareness, yogis find peace by being in the present moment. We can be attentive in school, we can enjoy a really good book, but, and we can be really into a conversation with a friend. Like I had mentioned, when you're in the zone, you put 110% into everything that you do, and then you're harnessing a fragmented thought into a really powerful tool and space. Through regular practice, in turn, what happens is our emotional sensitivity will grow. And we've heard, talked a lot about lately in our culture, like emotional intelligence. People who practice yoga I always like to think of, we start to get these heightened states of awareness. How many of you can tell if like someone calls you and you're like, oh my God, I know who it is before you even pick up the phone, right? We have senses that we're learning as yogis to tap deeper into, and we have five senses. But as yogis, I always think that we get to get into a state of emotional sensitivity where we have a sixth sense. And we get a greater sense of awareness where we can almost read how someone's feeling or we can energetically be able to kind of like have that premonition. It's very cool. And then in turn, we get to a state of like um, a better, easeful way of finding consciousness and meditation. And um, we go in the eight limb practice from gross external practices like yama to your mama and the niyamas like showering and make sure you brush your teeth and be a good human and practice self-study, which we're all doing right here, svadhyaya. But then we move into more of the deeper things where we do candle gazing meditation or the prana shakti meditation or we start the sense meditation where we passed around the essential oil and uh, did a sensory awareness through that. We're diving deeper into a state of samadhi or being in the zone by um, going into internal practices. And that in turn makes us a better human. In turn, it's what I like to call radical compassion, radical kindness. Being the big old hippie that I am. And when we practice radical kindness and we have this endless, mindful, unbroken state of being, we end up offering peace and harmony and find inner joy. One of the cool things that happens is we learn about something called koshas. Has anybody ever heard of the word kosha? As this book was created for someone who's like never studied yoga before, I know it seems like, oh, for some of you this is review, but the way that this manual was created, I really wanted people to get a good understanding of like, what is yoga? Why are we really doing this and all of that? So I appreciate the fact that you're sitting here listening to me talk about things that you might already know. But koshas 
are all about like layers and unraveling the uh, the the outside layers to get to the heart of the matter. I like to think of it like an avoc- uh, uh, artichoke. You know how outside it's like really prickly, mm-hmm. and then there's this really sweet piece. But then as you keep pulling away the pieces, there gets more and more of the juicy meat of it, and it gets sweeter, and you don't even need the butter anymore because you like get to the heart of the matter. That's kind of what our practice helps us do. It peels away all those walls that we've built up. Um, and like an onion, when you peel away the layers, you kind of get to that um, more of the internal, the heart of the matter. And you develop this amazing sense of emotional awareness and intelligence. Yogis call these different layers. There's a physical layer, there's a mental layer, there's a spiritual layer, until you get to the heart of it. And there's five of them. Um, But really, when you're teaching this to kid and they get to peel away the layers, they get that inner sense of joy or contentment. And in our book, we learn that yogis are uh, naturally sunny by nature. And kids are naturally sunny by nature. And in order to get ourselves to be bright and, and, and like a sun and shining brightly all the time, we want to really keep kids flexible and see rainbows through the clouds. So in your cards deck, um, there's a card that says uh, sweet, sour, or same, where you can ask the kids after class, how are you feeling, and how did this affect you? Because you might have come in feeling really poopy and icky and yucky, but you can leave and you can say, how are you feeling? Are you feeling better? Are you feeling worse? And then in turn, it gives them an opportunity to see the effect of the practice, But in your manual, it also has how you feel cards that you can copy and then cut up and you can share. Because a lot of times when kids have big emotions, they don't know how to use their words. And this helps to use the words in an interesting way to let them take a deep breath and let go. Uh, There's a quote here by Carl Jung that says, one looks back with appreciation to the brilliant teachers but with gratitude to those who touch our human feelings. The curriculum is so much more necessary raw material, but warmth is the vital element for the growing plant and for the soul of the child. So we're cultivating seeds of mindfulness that will blossom and grow and, le- and, and be in effect for the rest of their lives, which I think is amazing. One thing that I want to kind of really make uh, you all hyper aware of is when you get to like page 13, the mission of Super Stretch's practice is really a fun way of creating the yamas and the niyamas. So I'm just going to read the mission again. Namaste becomes an acronym. I want to join the team and I will work to create a peaceful, balanced life by living the Super Stretch mission. Nothing is impossible. Always be honest. Make the world a better place. Act with kindness. Share with others. Trust and believe in yourself. Enjoy and have fun. With a strong body, clear mind, and pure heart, I promise to be the best person I can be and make namaste a part of my day. When you get into the manual on page 13, there's a great visual of a tree that really tells you everything that you need to kind of know about the yamas and the niyamas in a very simplistic way. 
When you're working with kids, you're really focusing on the first four, the gross, the outer layers of the yamas and the niyamas. Ahimsa is really one that I want you to kind of focus on the most. And you can see that that comes from the roots of the tree. And what do you think ahimsa is? Ahim? Sa? So, ladies? Hmm? Do you mean what the, the Yeah, the definition of it. Yeah. It applies to the namaste. Yeah. Oh no, either. Just what it, what, it, what is by definition ahimsa to you? Non-harming. Non-harming, right? Non-harming, non-violence. We hear that a lot. But um, there's a wonderful, wonderful person who has passed. His name, name is Jorg Furstein. And what I like to think about the idea of um, non-harming or uh, the idea of ahimsa is that we always talk about... Um, in thought, in speech, and in action, that we do no harm to others. But how many of you said some nasty shit to yourself on the way in? <laughs> or had some weird thought about someone else today? Or had some kind of negative thing that flowed through you that was about yourself? Right? I think that's one of the most challenging principles to get past. Because in the eight-limb path, I don't think any of us can honestly say that we've ever gotten uh, the ability to conquer ahimsa. It's very challenging, right? In thought, in speech, and in action, to do no harm, not just to other people, but to ourselves. That's a huge, huge one. So I think really what we're teaching when we go out there, other than the breath, is we're teaching to be compassionate in radical compassion not to, or, and kindness to others, but to ourselves. Because if we had that compassion and kindness to ourselves, then in turn, it would be really easy to be nice to everybody else. The golden rules of do no harm, right? Or to treat your, what's the golden rule? To uh, treat others as you treat, right? treat, as you treat yourself. It starts with you. And I think we really forget that. The satya, the truthfulness, the asteya, the non-stealing, the brahmacharya, the idea of self-control or really watching what you do and not doing something inappropriate is easy. But the idea of aparigraha, that um, non-grasping or selfishness, you know, all that stuff doesn't really mean anything if you can't practice ahimsa to yourself. And the interesting thing about aparigraha, which I really want to make emphasis, emphasis that in the yamas, is that our hands and our feet have an amazing ability to do something that our brain does. Right? What am I doing? I'm grasping onto something. My mind does the same thing, but my feet can let go. My hands can let go, but my mind doesn't let go. And we bring it all back again to ahimsa, that we need to really focus our energies on finding some peace and some kindness to ourselves and to others to be able to let go of the things that cling to us. And we, a lot of times, create those broken records of shoulda, coulda, woulda 
that would be very easy to let go of if we would allow ourselves to create space to see things from a greater perspective than just a really myopic view of, oh, woe is me. Right? Niyama is the idea of personal disciplines, and it's cleanliness, contentment, great effort, uh, the idea of self-study, and a faith in whatever your faith is. Asana, that you're sitting on the platform of the breath. And then we go a little bit deeper into breath work and breath control. And you can see, as you grow up the tree, the roots bear fruit to get the trunk of the tree to grow up. And then it moves up into the uh, idea of the branches, which is the asana of your practice. And then you move into pranayama, where you're kind of sprouting leaves, you're using the oxygen to create newness. And then it moves into the idea of the pratyahara, which you're starting to grow the bark on the tree. You're getting layers, you're getting more depth. Then the dharana, which is the sap of the tree, where you're getting more into the concentration. And the dhyana is the meditation, the mindfulness. But I really think once you get into the asana, you're already doing a moving meditation. So you're already in that space of that seventh limb where you're bearing fruit and flowers and blossoming and growing. And then the samadhi or the kaivalya is the goal of yoga where the yogi unites with that true nature, your essence, right? Where then you can open up to the infinite possibilities because you've allowed yourself to find yoga. You've allowed yourself to find harmony. You've let go of the dregs, right? And you've allowed yourself to find the good stuff at the top. It's like, has anybody ever made Greek coffee? Mmm. Okay, so you get this copper pot. You put the coffee grinds in it and some water. And you put it on the little fire. And you let the coffee rise up and it just bubbles. And all the stuff goes Just like your um, calming ball, everything gets all shaken up. I can't find it. Everything gets all shaken up, and then it settles because you take it off the heat. And then you put it back on, and everything shakes up, and it gets all activated. And then you take it off the fire, and it settles, and it comes to the bottom. And you do that about three times, and then what happens is the dregs or like the grinds of it, stay at the bottom, but all the goodness rises to the top and is in the water now, which is coffee, and you pour it off and get to reap the benefits of all the goodness. And that's kind of what we're doing when we practice. We're creating the heat, and we're burning off the things that cling to us, and we let that sediment stay at the bottom, and then we allow ourselves to pour out our true nature and be really present and open and aware to all the beauty that lies within. Do you hear the violin? (laughs) So when we talk about the yamas and the niyamas and the way that they relate to the mission of superstretch is that the yamas are how to treat others and the niyamas are how to take care of yourself. And they're the practical foundations of yoga and guidelines to interact with the outer world and our inner world. They really reinforce universal values of truth, cleanliness, contentment, 
And the postures help a growing child develop physically, emotionally, and physiologically. It's a great compliment, those of you who are teachers and are educators, it's a great way to help facilitate inner, outer, and development. And let's turn now to page 15, where what I love is that this could be a whole class, where if you think of like ahimsa is all about how to maybe uh, be nice to our bodies, you could do a whole class that's just how to be nice to your body. Or you could do a whole class about like picking up trash on the street. So the whole class is about how do you get rid of garbage, and that's the theme for the class. And then after class, your act of kindness and um, compassion practice for the week is to go and pick up garbage. And then when you go to niyamas, like um, how many of you uh, see kids who have a hard time because they don't like to brush their hair or floss their teeth, right? And then if you teach them that like cleanliness is about taking pride in your appearance, all of a sudden you flip the switch. Um, someone once said that the aim of life is learning how to be yourself, how to be good, and how to live. And I always think that these yoga principles and guidelines for living teach us to act in a conscientious and attentive manner in all that we do, which in turn makes us the very best of ourselves. So even if you're having kind of like a, the opposite of sukha or sweetness is dukkha, where you feel kind of poopy and icky, even if you're having a day where you can embrace all facets of yourself, yogis call that the tejas, the luster, that we have all facets of our being, even if you're having a poopy day, you can still kind of be the very best of yourself because you're like, oh, I have all these different facets, but I'm not going to let the poopy stuff control me. I'm not going to let the yuckies take over, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, this is kind of something that's a part of me, but I have the choice to find brightness and luster and beauty within, even though it might not be the most sunny day. Once again, we see that rainbow. In here, I put an example of, like, character education um, stories that you could use as a lesson plan. So you all know the stone soup story. Any Aesop fable of working together where you contribute to the greater good. Um, in here, I put a story about a little elephant. And uh, so it goes posture, storyline, and then a discussion. I think this is a really interesting one. There's a Vedic story about a snake, um, about, and it's teaching ahimsa. And one day, the snake, uh, a, a person entered a village and they saw a large menacing snake, and the snake was terrorizing the villagers and making their life difficult. So the wise person spoke to the snake. Do you think this is where the idea of a snake charmer came from? And they taught him how to practice ahimsa and develop compassion and kindness for others. And it was a lesson that the snake heard and took to heart. So the following year, when the wise person made their annual visit back to the village, they again saw the snake and how changed he was. Now this magnificent snake was skinny and bruised, and the wise person asked the snake what had happened to cause such a change in their appearance. The snake replied that they had taken the teaching of Ahimsa to heart and had realized the error of their ways. Thus, he stopped terrorizing the village, 
but he was no longer menacing, and the children threw rocks at him and taunted him. And he could hardly hunt and was afraid of leaving his hiding place. And this is the idea of Himsa that I really want to sh- make sure kind of sinks in, is that the wise person shook his head and said that while he indeed taught the importance and power of practicing Ahimsa, he never told the snake not to hiss. So in thought, deed, and action, we also have to remember it is for ourselves just as much as it is for others. And these are great and rewarding philosophical practices. So there's lots of games and different things that you can do to create yama and niyama practices. Uh, in, in like 1987, there was this great article in a yoga journal about how yama and niyama uh, kind of reflect what you learn in preschool like things you teach, like sharing doubles of fun. If it's not your sack, put it back. But adults often tend to make things really super complex, right? Because it makes our life so much more exciting. And viewing lessons through the eyes of a child reminds us the power of simplicity. And we can really find liberation or freedom, or what yogis call that moksha, just through things we learned in like nursery school and pre-K. I really believe in the idea of being a bodhisattva and Buddhist philosophy. So I put in here an article all about the idea of um, the nine key qualities to have as a Buddhist and ways to teach to kids uh, to to develop uh, self-confidence, control, and all of the key characters to teach. A wise mother wrote to me in an email saying, I truly believe we live out part of our karma through our children, and we grow and improve as they do. Though we may think we are just helping our children be more happy, successful, in truth, we cannot separate ourselves from them. Their growth and spiritual evolution is our own as well. So the yamas and niyamas, whether any age that we're at, we learn to help people stay balanced. Mm-hmm.